You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The New England Current was a kind of a tabloid newspaper in colonial Boston, a paper that attacked the colonial government there and made fun of prominent clergymen, anything that would set off the establishment at that time. The proprietor of the paper was James Franklin, fourth son to the same father as the famous Benjamin Franklin. At the height of its success, 1722, and we're talking about 50 years before the events of the American Revolution, a letter appears under the door of the newspaper. It was a letter that would bring the newspaper much fame and would change history. was written by a minister's widow. Her name, Silence Duguid. Duguid said she was an enemy to vice, a friend to virtue. She loved the clergy and good men, but was the mortal enemy to arbitrary government and unlimited power. She was also an advice giver, and she could observe and reprove the faults of others. James Franklin knew that this letter that had arrived at his newspaper was fake. There was no minister's widow writing this letter. But he also knew it was really good stuff. In her first letter, the reader learns about Silence Duguid's birth on board a ship sailing to Boston and the dramatic death of her father swept overboard as he was standing on deck celebrating his newborn daughter. Oh, the tragedy and the necessity, then, of her apprenticeship to a minister because of the impoverished situation that her mother found herself in. And her education and exposure to books during her work for that minister. Readers reading it are hanging on every word, and she ends, As I would not engross too much of your paper at once, I will defer the remainder of my story until my next letter. In the meantime, desiring your readers to exercise their patience and bear with my humors now and then. Indeed, it was the cliffhanger, leaving the readers wanting more. And silence do good didn't invent it. James Franklin was indeed doing something revolutionary. Here's how Benjamin Franklin described it in his autobiography. James had some ingenious men among his friends who'd amused themselves by writing little pieces for his paper, which gained it credit and made it more in demand. And these gentlemen often visited us, hearing their conversations and their accounts of the approbation their papers were received with. I was excited 
These were the Corinters, or the Hellfire Club, the contributors to James Franklin's paper on the scene in Boston. After the New England Current published it about two weeks later, another letter appeared under the door. Then another. In that second letter, Silence Duguid continues her story and talks about how when the minister proposed marriage to him, she first burst out laughing and then apologized, and upon reflection, then accepted. She summarized her seven-year marriage, ending with the death of the minister. It is undoubtedly the duty of all persons to serve the country they live in according to their abilities. Let it suffice that I now take up a resolution to do for the future all that lies in my way for the service of my countrymen. So silence, Gugud continues. I have from my youth been indefatigably studious to gain and treasure up in my mind all useful and desirable knowledge. As I have found it very beneficial to me, I am not without hopes that communicating my small stock in this manner by piecemeal to the public may, at least in some measure, be useful. And so she dispensed her advice about politics, about the country, about our times. Among the many reigning vices of town, which may at any time come under my consideration and reprehension, there is none which I am more inclined to expose than that of pride. It is acknowledged by all to be a vice most hateful to God and to man. But this speculative pride may be the subject of another letter. I shall at present confine my thoughts to what we call pride of apparel. And she goes on talking about how the fashions of the day, and there's too much looking to Europe for fashions, and we should be looking at American homespun. Giving advice might be an American tradition. That's the conclusion of Jessica Weisberg, the author of Asking for a Friend, Three Centuries of Life, Love, Money, and Other Burning Questions from a Nation Obsessed. Weisberg has been published in The New Yorker, Harper's, New York Times, The Guardian, many other publications. She was nominated for an Emmy for her work on Vice News Tonight on HBO, and she was a producer on the podcast Serial. And uh, she spoke to us a bit about American advice giving. Jessica, is there something about America that we just love to give advice to each other? Yes. Um, I think that was one of the reasons why I set out to write the book originally. I wanted to understand why this was such a fixture in American culture and in American bookstores and in American radio. Um, it does exist in other countries, but not with the same intensity that it exists here. Yeah, does, this, does it go back to, you know, we're a democracy, and yeah, we have a little less class structure than other places, and have, uh, you know, have really since the colonial times, and, and if I'm just as good as you, uh, I can give you advice. Yeah, I mean, I think our, our love of advice speaks to a very um, loving thing about American about the like sort of speaking in large generalities, it mm. speaks to the fact that Americans are an optimistic people. And we sort of think that with a little bit of help and a, like a point in the right direction, there's not anything as possible. Um, like I think it points to like the things we celebrate most about American culture. It speaks to the fact that people really do believe in the American dream. Otherwise, they wouldn't be buying so many advice books. Everyone in Boston was trying to figure out who Silence Do Good was. 
what they could not have known, and what you surely have inferred or already know. The author was none other than Benjamin Franklin, 16 years old. We talked to Jessica about Benjamin Franklin. He dropped out of school when he was very young, and he got an apprenticeship with his older brother who ran a newspaper that was one of the only independent newspapers in the colonies at that time. And his brother wouldn't let him write. He just like gave him a lot of odd jobs. And uh, Benjamin Franklin was very bored and very, very hungry to get some bylines. And so what he did is he made up characters and he submitted stories under those characters so that he would get a chance to write. And the first character was this widow who was sort of um, very moralistic, but ha- shared a lot of opinions with Benjamin Franklin. She talked a lot about educational um, inequality um, and a lot about the sort of the, the sort of division between church and state. Um, so it's surprising that his brother didn't catch on a little bit quicker, but. Here's what he says about people in the newspaper office after the letters started to come in. They read it, commented on it in my hearing, and I had the exquisite pleasure of finding it met with their approbation, and that their different guesses at the author, none were named but men of some character among us for learning and ingenuity. As he's setting up the type for his own fictional character, and he's enjoying listening to these learned uh, students and scholars and and writers for his brother, and his brother as well, trying to guess who Silence Too Good is. Franklin, at first, wanted to go out to sea like so many of his countrymen, but his father wanted something else for him, and when his brother James came back from England with a font of type, ready to get into the newspaper business. So Benjamin Franklin joined him. But the work was laborious. Not only did he have to set the type, but he had to go out in the streets and also sell the newspaper. Now, this wasn't entirely new for young Benjamin Franklin, who had been writing poetry. He, in order to learn how to write and to teach himself, he would read newspaper articles. And if there was a poem, he would take the poem and turn it into a story. And if there was a story, he would take the story and turn it into a poem, until he became, by his words, a pretty tolerant English writer. He'd write songs that he would hawk in the street. From April 1722 to October 1722, they are published. In the last one, he takes on religion and hypocrisy. There is not a term in our language which wants explanation so much as the word church. One would think that when people utter it, they would have in their minds ideas of virtue and religion. But that important monosyllable drags all other words in the language after it. And he who is very zealous to oblige everyone to frequent it but himself has been a very good son of the church. This preposition is the best handle imaginable for politicians to make use of. I am, sir, your humble servant. Silence, do good. After the 14th letter, Benjamin does reveal to James and James's friends that he is indeed the author. The friends are amazed and have a new respect for this young typesetter. The brother, James, not so much. 
he warns him to be careful about his newfound fame. James was also getting into trouble with the local authorities. After he talked about a ship to go after the pirates that was taking a very long time for the authorities to get together, you know, implying that they were lazy, perhaps not brave, they actually sentenced James to a two-week time in prison. Now, laws weren't the same about speech as they are now. And as I think is known to everybody, Benjamin would eventually leave Boston and go to Philadelphia and become one of the premier printers in America and really premier celebrity in America, known internationally. And the way that he would do that, in a series of inventions, certainly, but by printing the Poor Richard's Almanac. Poor Richard's Almanac, um, to me, what's interesting about it is that it's funny. And it's it's very, very witty and very self-referential. And it's written from the point of view of someone who sort of knows what he's doing is gimmicky, but also knows what he's doing is important. And to me, that was so um, wise of Benjamin Franklin to sort of know that giving advice that no one, re- no like mere mortal really has the right to be telling people what to do. So he found this sort of sarcastic way of offering it so that people so that he wasn't, didn't appear to be taking himself too seriously. Well, on the other hand, the advice, in my view, was very quite earnest. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. October 16, 1747. Dear boy, the art of pleasing is a very necessary one to possess, but a very difficult one to acquire. It can hardly be reduced to rules. Right around the time of the American Revolution, Lord Chesterfield's letters to his son shows up on American bookshelves. Kind of has an interesting story. It wasn't like Lord Chesterfield intended to be an advice giver. No, not at all. Um, I feel like this is like the last thing he would have wanted. Um, So Lord Chesterfield was a diplomat. And he had an illegitimate son named Philip. And because of the various social rules of that day, of the, of those times, he, he rarely saw his son as he was growing up. And his son was raised by his biological mother. And he would write his son letters. And he would write his son letters basically every day. And when Chesterfield retired, the, the letters got more rigorous. And when um, his son Philip was, in, uh, was a teenager... He sort of took a big tour of Europe and met all of Chesterfield's colleagues. And during that time, his letters got very didactic. And it was t- he was telling his son how he should behave in various social situations, how his son should pick up women, you know, how his son should dress, how his son should groom himself. And the advice is very conniving. It's very like, this is how you manipulate a room. Mm-hmm. This is how you get people to like you. This is how you like come across as like the smartest, coolest guy. What happened was that um, Philip died young, and his wife, Eugenia, didn't have 
a way to make a living. And Chesterfield, when he died, left her no money. And so she decided to sell all of the letters that Chesterfield had written to her late husband. And they were incredibly popular in in Britain and then became very popular in America. Someone like a Chesterfield, that advice tended to be more of what we'd expect from that period. Um, he was not telling you to find your bliss. He was definitely saying, like, how do you make his basically his advice was that of a diplomat. You know, he, he, he came up in a world of trying to get things done and trying to negotiate between uh, different countries. And his advice to his son was sort of how to make um, to how to get what you want out of a social situation and how to get people to trust you and how to get people to listen to you. And what's very interesting about his advice is that it is sort of what you would expect of a person of that position and also a person who was very genuinely concerned about his son's future. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he, he was worried that his son wouldn't have the resources he would and because of the, st- the conditions of his birth wouldn't be given the same opportunities. So I think he was really genuinely nervous for his son and wanted to give him strategies to get ahead and strategies to succeed. But what interested me is about how that advice was um, explained was received in America. Because when it got to America, you know, people were sort of horrified by it, that this idea that you would think so strategically and that you would maneuver through the world only with your own interests in mind was very upsetting to a lot of American readers at the time. It was upsetting, but also sold copies, right? (laughs) That old chestnut. It was great reading. It was like, you know, it was like talking about going, it was like, it was juicy stuff. It was about meeting like European diplomats and picking up French women and wearing fancy gowns. And it was like, it was, a, it was a fun read. So I think it was popular and it was also exciting. Just the idea that you could sort of, um, that you could, there was no one in the world you couldn't sort of have a conversation with, and there was no situation in the world you couldn't sort of ready yourself for. for. Um, there, it sort of contained a world of limitless possibilities. Um, so it was very, very popular, but it was also the, it, the conniving aspect of it really upset a lot of American readers. I find it interesting because I think this is the whole question today in a debate that you bring up several parts of your book about politeness versus uh, honesty. Certainly, President Trump and that campaign, uh, the debates of 2016, just seeing things said on TV that you're not used to, the tweets, but not just at the presidential level, also among us. uh, Social media right now can be a nasty place, both Facebook and particularly Twitter, uh, the way people argue, the invasion of wrestling WWF style (laughs) memes into politics, uh, you know, seeing a video of Trump pile driving a CNN logo, things like this. Just the attitude that we we, we place it, it, you know, we see what situation uh, we're in 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 2018. But the conflict is between politeness and honesty. And, and, you know, to, to, to represent both sides a bit in that, it really does seem to go back to this Chesterfield, uh, in my opinion, because on one hand, it's good to be polite, and it's helpful, and it, and personally, it's always been my way, <laughs> but there's a whole different take on this, even in the podcasting world, certainly in social media, where you know people just let everything fly, because in their view, 
their side of the argument is they're being more honest. So unlike, say, that Chesterfield, they're being an honest American, say, and representing their their full views to people, speaking frankly. Very much so. Um, I think that was one of the things that interested me so much about Chesterfield, because what Chesterfield Mm. was trying to allow his son to do was to fit in in any social situation. He wanted his son to be able to enter any room in any country in Europe and to feel comfortable and to be able to ask the right question and be able to sort of um, adapt to the world he was in. He he told his son, you know, always um, he said to, he told his son to always imitate. And he said that the, the highest compliment was to be easy, you know, easy to be around, easy to jump in no matter where he was. And there's something um very American about this, this idea that you could sort of be comfortable anywhere. Um, I think that like Americans sort of, I prioritize the idea of being social chameleons. It also has to do with the fact, uh, the idea of the American dream that you can grow up in one place and end up in another. And you can be the first person in your family to go to college and sort of get there and sort of figure out how to behave. That requires a level of conniving. That requires a level of pretending, you know, getting, you know, if you're the old first woman to be at an organization that's never hired women before and you're trying to take social cues and trying to figure out your way through the situation, that's not necessarily, you're studying. You're trying to figure out how to behave. You interviewed Miss Manners. (laughs) Yeah, I did. That was great. Judith Martin, right? Did I have that right? Judith Martin. Yes, that's correct. and, uh, yeah, she seemed to be admiring almost of the American way of being able to pretend. Yeah, she really speaks highly of pretending. She just – and, like, I think it's interesting because interviewing her not that long after Trump's inauguration, and she was and she was a big fan of pretending. <laughs> she really <laughs> wanted people to behave more kindly towards one another and to sort of um, show respect for one another. And she sort of talks about how she appreciated that in her time as Miss Manners, who's written a column about etiquette for since the 1970s, that she's she's been, she's been delighted to see that fewer politicians are so bigoted. And that they sort of know that that's those kinds of comp, those kinds of comments are no longer acceptable to the people that they are governing, and so they stop saying it, whether or not that still is reflective of what they think. Um, and she really applauds that. <laughs> she really yeah. applauds the fact that we that these people are censoring themselves, um, which is sort of a funny thing to think about. But you know, it's but when you think about the Trump administration and and the sort of attitudes that have come up, and I feel like I developed a greater kinship with the people I was writing about mm-hmm. because I think that advice givers are in the sort of idealistic position of just trying to figure out a a way for people to get along. Like Miss Manners always says, Judith Martin or Miss Manners, whichever you prefer, always says that like etiquette is the basic bargain of civilization and that you behave just well enough not to piss anyone else off. I feel like you, we've over the last year or so, we've seen people not really care about pissing each other off at all. And even though I think advice giving has this this reputation for social conservatism, this reputation for establishing sort of arbitrary norms of what's right and wrong. I sort of had a greater kinship for the people I was writing about and sort of just sort of desiring a basic level of amicability between people and trying to create norms that would just allow people. Yeah, I mean, I think you step out into the world 
there are my my mother used to always say uh, there are other people in this world Bruce, there are other people in this world. And that's just a simple way of saying that. I mean, people have different opinions. If you look at a set of politics, there's many varied uh, opinions. And yet, I guess there there was a small backlash because of a lot of, we call it political correctness or whatever you like. Um, there's a small backlash. I do think it, it appears to me that there's been improvement, like what Miss Manners says about just making absolute direct bigoted comments, which would not have been when I was in the 80s or even the early 90s, uh, maybe not on TV and politics, but in in rooms, jokes about people's race, they would be considered funny. Why aren't you laughing? You don't do that anymore uh, in most circles. And so we've improved, we've involved, but maybe there was a little backlash as a cost. Yeah. And certainly the internet hasn't helped um just because mm. i think it gives people the freedom to say whatever they want without consequence um and one area i've been thinking about this more is um the me too movement mm -hmm. because I, I think one of the things that's confusing it for people is that there's um sexual assault that rises to the level of a crime and then there's sexual harassment that isn't criminal um and it just sort of has to do with the fact that people don't seem to understand how we should behave towards one another. And so Miss Manners would, talks a lot um, about how etiquette is sort of like an extra legal regulatory system. That if people just are kind to one another and respect to one another, that it can sort of function without outside of the world. That it, it, it sort of regulates, that, that their culture can regulate itself through etiquette. And you think about how offices clearly... Mm -hmm. Um, because of sexism and a variety of other, of other factors, they just there wasn't there hasn't been a cult. Such gross misbehavior has been allowed to exist. Yeah, I think uh, I, that was interesting reading in in the book. Uh, by the way, a reminder that I'm talking with Jessica Weisberg, and her book is "Asking for a Friend: Three Centuries of Advice on Life, Love, Money, and Other Burning Questions from a Nation Obsessed." And I thought that was interesting reading that section that where where Miss Manners goes into. That right, you have two choices: the law or etiquette, and that might be a good message for, particularly for so for at least fiscal or social conservatives. That you know, which one do you want? Do you want a bunch of laws because that's what comes next if the etiquette doesn't work? So if we don't have rules established in the office place, the lawsuits will be a coming. I mean, they've already to an extent, and uh, also laws will be coming. Um, but it's easier to regulate things by etiquette. Yeah, she gives out a lot of examples. Her whole point is that the reason why um, that like etiquette exists to sort of fill the gaps where the law doesn't touch, and it does feel right now in our society that etiquette isn't working as well as it should. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. 
We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Yeah, I think because the politics are gamed, there's a lot to gain from not being in etiquette. There's a certain group that feels that etiquette was holding back. So say on the GOP side, it might be expressed in, um, well, we ran Mitt Romney and look at how that went. And now we ran Trump. He destroyed his opponents. You know, anything you say to me, I'm going to respond at any level. Some people are definitely seeing the political advantage in it and then saw etiquette as a political loser. Whether that will play out long term, I think remains to be seen. And there's this side point that even among, say, people who are more on the left, there's a desire for frank talk, for non, say, corporatist uh, speeches, uh, for for talk about what's real, uh, real problems of America, and they don't like the kind of flowery language. I go back uh, and listen to some of the old, like maybe Bill Clinton's inaugural speech or some of his campaign speeches, and there's a lot of kind of lofty uh, rhetoric that maybe wouldn't be as welcome these days. Yes, you, my fellow Americans, have forced the spring. Now we must do the work the season demands. Yeah, I think that in terms of honesty versus politeness, you need both. I think that um, social change requires honesty. I think that all of the progress we've seen over the last few decades since this matter started has begun from a place of people saying this is uncom- this is unfair, this is uncomfortable, this needs to change. And all those sentiments come from a place of vulnerability and honesty. Um, it's the it's the sort of grown-ups in the room, the actors that sort of are it, it's sort of upsetting when they can't react to that level of vulnerability. In the debate over politeness versus honesty, you also see this difference. There's a difference between I will speak frankly about the issues of America today. I'm not going to hold back because I'm, say, worried about uh, what other politicians will think of me. And that's very valued right now. That's a high commodity. The I'm taking on the establishment. I don't care what they say. And then there's like sending a tweet and saying Pocahontas or Crazy Bernie. These are just insults that don't that might be frank and honest, but don't add to the honesty because they're they're not elevating. And I think there's just this incredible tension. But again, I would attribute most of that tension to the fact that the stakes are high. We're talking about power. We're talking about control of the White House and congressional branches that can run the country and so that compared to uh being a little polite is is uh the politeness is being devalued yeah i agree and i think that in terms of you mentioned earlier the idea of um political correctness and that this idea that we live in this world of of too much censorship and that you know like speakers and professors on college campuses are afraid to be too honest and afraid to speak to their mind. Like that I don't agree with because I feel like that is a speaking on honestly and then mm-hmm. having consequences for the truth of what you say. And I think that we live in a culture right now where people don't want to face consequences for the truth of what they say, which is what has made been possible on the internet. 
On May 7, 1931, the most sensational manhunt in New York City came to its climax. Two-Gun Crawley, the killer, the gunman who didn't smoke or drink, was at bay. 150 policemen and detectives laid seeds to his top-floor hideaway. They chopped holes in the roof, and they tried to smoke out Crowley, the cop killer, with tear gas. Then they mounted their machine guns on surrounding buildings, and for more than an hour, one of New York's fine residential areas reverberated with the crack of pistol fire and the rat-tat-tat of machine guns. 10,000 excited people watched the battle. Nothing like it had ever been seen on the sidewalks of New York. And when Crowley was captured, Police Commissioner E.P. Mulrooney declared that the two-gun desperado was one of the most dangerous criminals ever encountered in the history of New York. But how did two-gun Crowley regard himself? We know, because while the police were firing into his apartment, he wrote a letter addressed to whom it may concern. And, as he wrote, the blood flowing from his wounds, Under my coat is a weary heart, but a kind one, one that would do nobody any harm. A short time before this, Crowley had been out with his girlfriend on a country road in Long Island when a policeman walked up to the car and said, Let me see your license. Without saying a word, Crowley drew his gun and cut the policeman down with a shower of lead. And that was the killer that said, under my coat is a weary heart, but a kind one. Crowley was sent to the electric chair, and when he arrived in Sing Sing, he said, this is what I get for defending myself. The point of this story, artfully told by the writer Dale Carnegie, is that Two-Gun Crowley didn't blame himself for anything. Is that unusual among criminals? If you think so, listen to this. I have spent the best years of my life helping people, the lighter pleasures, helping them have a good time, and all I get is abuse. That's Al Capone speaking. Capone didn't condemn himself. And Dale Carnegie continues in his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, from the 1930s. I've had some interesting correspondence with Lewis Laws, who is the warden of New York's infamous Sing Sing Prison for many years on this subject, and he declared that few of the criminals in Sing Sing regard themselves as bad men. They are just as human as you and I, consequently stoutly maintaining that they never should have been imprisoned at all. John Wanamaker, founder of the stores that bear his name, once confessed, I learned 30 years ago that it is foolish to scold. I have enough trouble overcoming my own limitations without fretting over the fact that God has not seen it fit to distribute evenly the gift of intelligence. Wanamaker learned this lesson early, but I personally had to blunder through this old world for a third of a century before it began to dawn upon me. Dale Carnegie writes that 99 times out of 100 people don't criticize themselves for anything, no matter how wrong it can be. Criticism is futile because it puts the person on the defensive and usually makes him strive to justify himself. Criticism is dangerous. It wounds a person's precious pride, hurts his sense of importance, arouses resentment. All of this from Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. There's a figure that you talk about in the book, which, which and I particularly like, and that's Dale Carnegie. 
came out of the depression. It was that it was a book for for that times yeah. when really people needed jobs. They needed to hold on to their jobs. But Dale Carnegie to me is always about you know think of the other person. You need to put yourself in another person's shoes in order to sell them in order to win. So Dale Carnegie, um, he wanted to be an actor, and he came to New York to study acting, and it wasn't going so well for him. And so he started teaching public speaking classes. And he developed a reputation as just being a masterful public speaking instructor, and especially among businessmen. And so if you were sort of a mid-level businessman who wanted to impress your boss, who had a big presentation, you would take Dale Carnegie's class. And um, his book um, sort of came out of, of those lectures and came out of his experience as a, as a public speaking instructor. And when you think about that, his book makes so much sense because it's, it's not thinking about your audience. It's about like putting your audience at ease, keeping your audience uh, interested, keeping them engaged. It's a very selfless book. It's really not about, it's about getting what you want by giving other people what you want. And I think that, you can you can really tell that he was third of thinking as a performer, but the book itself, which is how to make um, how to win friends and influence people, isn't just about public speaking. It's about succeeding in the workplace, and it did come out in the heart of the Great Depression, and it came out at a time when, if you had a job, you were pretty you would you would not want to lose it, and it was really a manual and people pleasing. It was really a manual and you know impressing the people who paid your salary. There was something. There's something very conservative about it. It's something that there's something that's very, very foreign from how we think about work today, um, and how we sort of expect the company. Often, I think we, especially in media, we expect the companies mm. we work for to sort of bolster our individual brands, and um, we think about you know um, having our own identity online. And it's a very we live in a very sort of individualistic professional culture. I'm especially thinking of the media world, but he was just very about the sort of really thinking about the collective and like the best way to succeed professionally was like being the best company man you could be. And his book was just the manual of being the best company man. And I remember once in my uh, forum that I have along with this podcast, which where, believe it or not, <laughs> there are some <laughs> arguments that occur over politics and, and history. And I remember telling a person like, you know, you're always here arguing. And sometimes demeaning. And I'm like, why don't you look at it? And then this person happened yeah. to be, you know what his employment was? He was a salesperson. And I said, well, how come from nine to five, you act like a salesperson and you get into your customers' heads and you do all of this Dale Carnegie stuff, um, and, but, but on, the, on your spare time, when you're on political boards, instead of trying to sell someone to your point of view and gain a vote, perhaps, for the candidate you like, you're just bashing them. And uh, so I just think we've gotten pretty far from Dale Carnegie. That, that's just one of the things that really attracted me um, to this book and at, at this time, and uh, that's why I think it's perfectly timed. Perhaps talk a bit about Dale Carnegie. And the book still sells, and there's still uh, – you visited one of the Dale Carnegie centers uh, as part of your research. I did, yeah. I went to a seminar. Um most of the people there were there like from companies. It seems that their the corporations they worked for had sort of paid for the class um, or sort of had encouraged them to go and then would pay for um, a curriculum should they um, choose to continue with it. Um, 
And they were there. Like I talked to one guy who was like, who was telling me that he now works remotely from his whole, from his entire team and can go whole days without talking to anybody. And that he just liked the idea of having like a refresher course and basic conversation, which made me kind of sad, but also made a lot of sense because we all, we, we work in very sort of individualized ways these days. We had these large corporations and you worked in them, uh, you know, most, there was, there was more labor needed, even if it was white collar labor, there was more labor needed in, in the past in, in jobs, um, before there were computers. So you're usually working in large workplaces and the idea was to be a good company, company might take care of you, but also that because you're entering this big office every day, there's a certain way to behave in a certain regulation that occurs and people will be horrified by certain events and it might affect you in this world. And maybe this idea that we're all, a lot of us, gig economy, working from home for an office that might be somewhere else or in another country, we become more individualistic perhaps. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that back then also that you could expect a lot more for your, from your employer. And I think that's changed a lot too. Like fewer companies offer health insurance. People stay at the jobs, stay at jobs for a lot less time than they used to. Um, so I think that it speaks to this this period of American life where people were much more loyal to who, who was employing them, and for good reason. Uh, you have a section in your book, which I found interesting, about Quora. And uh, <laughs> it's uh, the website where people ask questions and answer them. I'm a big uh, user of Quora. I'm a answer writer on Quora. So I oh, suppose great. I am. I can't say I'm always giving advice, although sometimes I do in some of the same areas we just spoke about and think a little differently about politics or something or or how to persuade uh-huh. people. But, um, yeah, no, I'm an avid user. I, I oh. answered something like 400 questions, mostly about history and, and politics. I love the site. What do you love about it? Uh, the site, I think the best thing about Quora is that um, the questions, mm-hmm. because to just think of questions for myself and to, you know, just think of what to ask myself and then answer it can be very difficult. That's interesting, because I, I think that's one of the reasons why publishers started advice columns to begin with. It was this really great way of polling your readers and figuring out what they wanted to know. Um, it was just like a very good and simple tactic for, you know, really engaging your audience. If I put a question out on the on the Facebook forum, the fans of my history can beat up your politics, and there's a there's a good group there. I know you you'll get some responses, but on Quora you'll get people who they're deciding to ask that question. Yeah, it's just the whole world. Of course, it's this idea that we're all kind of experts. We can be if we want to be, and as any podcaster, the, that's the essence of podcasting. It's just built on that. I think that so much of advice now is given and received online. So I really wanted to end the book with a chapter about uh, about that. And um, Quora stuck out to me for a number of reasons. One, because it's really genuine. Like it, a lot of what's on there is advice. Um, and I was sort of I was sort of touched by the earnestness of the responses and the earnestness of the questions. And I feel like social media in general, as we've been discussing earlier, has a reputation for being like a, like a pretty aggressive space. So the idea that there mm-hmm. was this website where people went to be earnest, like really interested me. And to me, the, like, and speaking of etiquette, I just was sort of amazed by it. It was this very like self-regulated, very polite, 
self-regulatory space that is sort of surprising to me in the internet. I will say about Quora that they are one of the few websites. Would that Twitter had done this in 2007? They have the BNBR policy: be nice, be respectful. And they kick a lot of people off if they're if they don't if they don't adhere to those policies. And yes. even the guy I profile, who's a very genuine genuine supplier and very prolific supplier, as I talk about in the book, of answers, like he's overstepped once or twice and been kicked off. So like it's not self regulating. Yeah, it becomes so because it is the users flagging all the activity that's violations. But yeah, they, they, they are one of the few sites that actually enforce it. Of course, there's pushback from the same people you know, that, that want right. more frankness, more honesty. I want to say anything I want, who might be on Reddit, say, instead of Quora. But uh, it's got a pretty good, still get very interesting answers. Yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of an interesting space. Um and like I, I go on Reddit a lot, especially when I'm looking for stories. So, but I felt like Quora was just as really felt like more of a social space. And the thing I learned um, from talking to Mike King is that he's he really has relationships with the different Quora users mm-hmm. in ways that um, felt kind of specific to me. So I profiled a um, a top writer named Mike King, who is probably the most prolific contributor to Quora out there. Then mm-hmm. he's a former psychologist, and so most of the questions he takes are about um, are, are people who are suffering from some kind of mental illness or some kind of trauma. And he's retired now, um, and he just spends all day long responding to people's questions on Quora. And he's responding to like twenty some odd questions a day, and the questions are like harrowing. And like one thing that. Um, I thought about a lot with the book is that advice columns have been a place that people go to when they don't have mental health resources. Um, Jeffrey Zaslow, who is the Mm -hmm. advice columnist who took over after Ann Landers talks about just how he got so many questions from people who couldn't afford counseling, couldn't figure out where to, how to get to an, an, AA meeting just didn't wasn't able to use the public transportation and it was turning to him you know um, a guy who won a, who like won a writing contest and he was sort of struck by the responsibility of that um, and so I was just sort of interested in this guy my king who had sort of willingly accepted the responsibility of that and he talks he answers questions from so many people who just uh, sometimes all he does is like give them a hotline number or give them the number of like a mental health clinic in their neighborhood but it's it was it was interesting to me just how much responsibility he had sort of taken on oh absolutely yeah the top core writers have become little mini just yeah, it's a mini community of their own we have been talking with jessica weisberg the author of asking for a friend three centuries of advice on life love money, and other burning questions from a nation obsessed. Now, you might be listening to this podcast and you say, oh, my gosh, we talked about everything. Uh, (laughs) There's so much more in her book. Um, We didn't even get a chance to get into Dear Abby and Ann Landers, the two sisters uh, giving – they were sisters, right, giving advice. Twin sisters, yeah. Twin sisters. Benjamin Spock, Joan Quigley, Helen Hunt and Sylvia Porter, all of these uh, others advice givers through the ages are, you know, covered in the book. Um, thanks so much for coming on. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Thanks so much for having me. 
We want to thank Jessica for coming on the program. The website for this program is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Remember to think about the premium podcast for as little as $2 a month. You get extra episodes. You can help support the program. I'm very pleased to say that coming up, we are going to have Greg Young from the very successful Bowery Boys podcast talking about New York City, Robert Moses, infrastructure, a lot of other things. Looking forward to that. Thanks for listening. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.